Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Hello and welcome to Twisted Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. And your hosts are me, Bob Dale. And me, Ali Downey. And this week, for this week only, well, hopefully not maybe, uh, we are joined by the wonderful Adam. Hello, Adam. Hello, how are you? And Adam is the host of the uh, UK True Crime podcast. It's great to be here in the Cecil Inn in Stirling, finally. Yeah, we've been trying to work this out for a wee while now, haven't we? Um, <coughs> uh, but uh, thanks very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, you've been doing this for a bit longer than we have. Uh, how many years have you been podcasting now? I'm like the Ian Beale of uh, podcasting, I'm afraid. <laughs> been here since the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> About four years now. Yeah, yeah, it feels longer. Oh yeah, I'll bet yeah. it does. Every day every day is a struggle. Um, for those of you who are listening here that haven't heard of Adam, I would be very surprised if you're on our podcast and you haven't heard of him. Um, can I say one of my first true crime podcasts I ever listened to? Really? Was yourself, indeed. And I, I didn't come into this off the back of that thinking, oh, I can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we thought, since you are now part of, well, I'm going to go there, you're part of the elite group that is Scottish podcasters now, yeah. technically. Yeah, not many of us are there. No, there's not. All wonderful. Um, but yeah, you're. Uh, we thought since you were up here anyway, you should come and listen to us to recant a tale to you. Um, and as always with uh, Twisted Britain, if you want to say anything or shoot me down or whatever, please do. Um, just chime in. Just chime in. Um, I sent Ali a wee thing earlier just telling him what the case was, which uh, we, we tend to do the before uh, recording. But I thought I would leave you in the, the dark, and I apologise for that in advance. I just thought you'd, I'd tell you what is quite a Scottish-based tale where um, the men were hanged, I would guess, 250 yards from here. Yeah, about that. Um, you can't get much better local true crime than, what, a quarter of a kilometre away, can yeah, you? Up the road. Love it. Looking forward to it. Um, you've covered some Scottish cases, though. I have, and of course my book came out about Angus Sinclair earlier this year. Yep. Um, even this week I covered a case from Glasgow. I love the Scottish cases. I often drive around, have a look at the, the area. 
But Sterling, I haven't covered one in Sterling, so I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, cool. So this has definite links to Sterling. And I'm going to start this evening with a, a quote from a, the Committee for Organisation of a Provisional Government. Friends and countrymen, roused from that torpid state in which we have sunk for so many years, we are at length compelled to the extremity of our sufferings and the contempt heaped upon our petitions to redress and assert our rights as the hazard of our life. Liberty or death is our motto, and we have sworn to return home in triumph or return no more. It's quite a strong statement. Strong, um, strong words, but the Committee of Organisation for Forming a Provisional Government is not, uh, doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> not snappy <laughs> enough for you? No. Would you have gone with the Kopka? Yeah. The Kopka. We've got COP26 this year. Maybe this was the original one before they started on letters. <laughs> so last year in a small ceremony that would have probably been a bit bigger if it hadn't been for, you know, COVID and all that shite. So the 200-year mark of the execution of the Scottish radicals, John Baird and Andrew Hardy. And obviously, since it was a COVID year, it was done uh, on a bit of a smaller scale than we would have liked to have think. Um, Provost Christine Simpson, joined by two local councillors, basically laid flowers in front of a memorial on Broad Street, which is just around the corner from here, right next to the what used to be the Market Cross, and it was where the gallows were <coughs> always erected in Stirling. There's a, a plaque on the wall there in... What I'm going to say is memory of these two, um, because the, what we're going to talk about here is they were accused and found guilty of a crime, but I think in some people's eyes, it wasn't a crime as such. It was a, a, a passionate endeavour, shall we say, that they maybe went about in the wrong way. Um, so, as I say, three people laid flowers, and that was it. That's a bit of a stark contrast to the scene that we see 200 years ago, just around the corner. On the 8th of September in 1820, Baird and Hardy stood on the gallows in front of the tollbooth in Stirling, in front of a crowd of 2,000 people gathered, basically to watch the two men swing. Mm. I know I say this every time we talk about hanging and, and the, uh, the groups, uh, the, sorry, the crowds that gather, but I just find it baffling that that was the spectacle that it is. He says here, recording a true crime podcast, but <clears throat> I don't, I don't miss out on the irony of that, but I just find it, I don't know, some of the ones we've read about, was it the Haw Bridge tossle? Yeah. And the, the, there was 20,000 people gathered outside the prison for that. And they would take their families. I was in Edinburgh last weekend and I found out the, the root of the word hangover. Have you heard this before? No, on you go. It's because people at the hangings used to get drunk. Oh, okay. And hence hangover. That's where the word comes from. Oh, that is mm. wonderful. Isn't it? Yeah. I didn't know that either. Uh, I've never seen anybody hang, but I've had a lot of hangovers. <laughs> I, could, I, I, I didn't know that either, but I can theorise about why it might have been such a widely attended spectacle. If you think about it now, we have all sorts of sources of input from social media, the news, reassuring us that justice is served. In that time, they didn't have that. The only way to know that justice was being served was to attend things like public hangings and see the laws being enacted. Do you know, that's really quite profound, Alistair, and it's not something I'd thought about. I kind of just went down the route of it was almost the podca true crime podcasting of the day. It mm -hmm. was gruesome human intrigue. I think there's a bit of that as well, but if you look at it, a court uh, 
trials were much more widely attended in the 1800s and the early 1900s than they are now as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The other weird thing about hangings that always gets me is apparently if somebody hung really quickly and died straight away, there'll be booze from the audience. Whereas if they carried on and didn't die straight away, they'd be cheering and drinking and standing up. Very, very strange. I wonder if um, the long drop did, a, uh, did, did away on attendance numbers. Yeah. <laughs> wow, grim. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, back, back to our tale today. And I would say before I get into this, it, it could be argued, as I said, that these men weren't actually criminals. They were standing up for their civil liberties. And I will not allow any of us to uh, cast aspersions on uh, nationalism or pride or anything like that. Well, I will just tell you the tale as I read it and wrote it down. So what are the Radical Wars of 1820? Well, in short, it's basically a week of strikes and civil unrest throughout the whole of Scotland that in part lead um, to the trial of many. In fact, 88 men were tried uh, on this occasion after a week's worth of um, civil unrest. Uh, And actually, the eventual execution of at least three uh, men that were hanged for uh, their taking part in the Radical Wars. Three were hanged and 21 or 22 were transported to Van Diemen's land. We can always assume with my cases that somebody is being transported. (laughs) It's an easy out. Um, But we'll we'll come back to the um, outcome once I tell you what happened. They were tried for treason, basically. Um, And that kind of skirting over the civil unrest of Scotland at the time is a bit of a skirting over it. I'll go into a bit more detail in a bit, but it that the, the feeling at the time um, is a bit of restlessness throughout the entire of the UK. But it takes a lot to turn a man to treason. Um, this, it, it's a big step to go from going, I don't like the government, to committing uh, an act that is seen as standing against them. Taking up arms against. <clears throat> Indeed. And we have to remember that this is a time of unrest, not just in the UK, but across massive swathes of Europe. Um, it's only about 20 years previously that the factual documentary of Les Miserables had taken place in France. French and we, Revolution. We all know that Hugh Jackman caused a massive political change there. He and we, th- we thank you, Wolverine. <laughs> um, off the back of that, there's, there's unrest that spreads throughout uh, Europe. And the people here in the UK... They begin to sing to, and I promise I won't do as many, too many more lame as puns, but I enjoy it, so never mind. Um, if Jean Van Jean is in this. I've I, I tried to get the, the number 24601 in here, but I couldn't quite do it. <laughs> um, basically, the, the, the general, general population of the UK wanted a bit of political reform as well here. Um, we've talked briefly in the past about uh, the Peterloo Massacre. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you heard of the Peterloo? Yeah, yeah, I have. So it was one of the first times on British soil that um, the cavalry charged against the general population. We, we mentioned it briefly in our Cato Street um, episode um, because it, it was a huge kind of change in the feeling of, of the, the general populace at the time as to going, well, we thought we could stand up for things, but this is a, a, a show of force that says we can't. Um, but the Peterloo Massacre wasn't the first big gathering of people. Um, three years previously, we see 40,000 people gla- gathering on Glasgow Green, not for transmit, but for a politically motivated uh, rally uh, and basically try and force the end of the Corn Wars. 
Now, that's basically inflated tariffs on imported food and locally grown grains to kind of keep the, the, the food prices high as a way of stamping down on the population. And as you can imagine, low-end workers, mainly the weavers, which there would have been a huge amount of in the Glasgow area and across the central belt. I mean, you think Paisley Pattern, for for one, just to mention the biggest factory. That, that's what would have been one of the big employers in the Glasgow weaving industry, and, and, that, and that stretched throughout the central belt. The unrest felt in the general people were, were there was attempts to appease them by um, the the authorities, the, the, the local councillors, the government at the time, uh, to try and employ them into anything. Just here's a job, stop riot, not rioting, but stop arguing with us. Here's a job, um, and it it didn't quite have the desired effect. No, it didn't have the desired effect. And I was interestingly listening to more or less on the walk up here, and mm. they were talking about how actually. Uh, provision of labour doesn't remove, um, it doesn't equate with better wages, it doesn't equate with um, people being happier because some people don't want to work. And, yeah. and, and that's that's an underlying factor there that we have to think about. And like you say, Ali, it didn't have the quite the desired effect. It ended up in arrests and trials for unrest in the in public. Now we go back to Peter Lou, and I know I've talked about it just briefly, but I think... The reason I bring it up is that although it happened down south, the general feeling was the same all over Britain and the actions of the cavalry that day ended the demonstrations there but kind of led to the demonstrations being all, happening all over the country in Airdrie, in Ayrshire, in Fife and right where we sit now in Stirling. These demonstrations uh, sometimes got a bit out of hand and rioty. Mm. Um, I couldn't work out how to spell rioty. It turns out it's not a real word. Um, but... Mm. They got a bit rioty. Not a real word. Well, I couldn't get it to spell. I mean, that might just be me, but I couldn't <laughs> get it to spell right on a on, on the old word document here. I'd give you rioty. Thanks, man. No, I wouldn't. Riotous. Ah, okay. Ri- I, that's the word. I prefer rioty. With a Y or an IE? I, I'm going with a Y. A Y. It looks punchier. Yeah, I like it. I-O-U-S. <laughs> Riotous. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as I said, the, the big inspiration off the back of the Peterloo was the Cato Street conspiracy that we covered in a previous episode. And that was where there was attempts on the lives of the entire British cabinet. And I have said this before, but I'll say it again. It was a much better attempt than Guy Fawkes. Uh, but you can't have a party about trying to kill men with swords. So you can, But you can have one with a fire in it. So I think that's probably why we remember Guy Fawkes slightly better. Um, so we've heard a lot about kind of the bits and pieces around it. And let's wander directly into 1820. At the beginning of 1820, as you can imagine, the government are a wee bit uneasy. They've had a few years of general population not really liking them, and they've just had a group of radicals try and kill them. That unease, they felt, was kind of justified as across the entire British Isles, groups of radicals were meeting in the back rooms of pubs. <laughs> we, all, we could almost fit into that group right now. Um And they were basically holding small... I was looking for the word, and I think rallies is the correct word. They were having... Meetings of people with like-minded and they were trying to broadcast their message of political reform. They didn't have unreasonable um, demands, I don't think. And, and like I say, we won't strain to nationalism at all. But I don't think that the removal of the six acts, which had been, it was a law that had been passed in the previous year, directly off the back of Cato Street. And these acts in their simplest form were suppression of the right to gather. Um, and basically to stop the rise against the government at the time. There was the Training Prevention Act, 
which uh, meant you can't meet with the aim to train with a weapon anywhere. The Seizure of Arms Act, which is fairly self-explanatory, except for the fact that they were allowed to enter your home and just look for weapons. Uh, there's the Misdemeanors Act, basically a fancy way of saying we can take you to court and process you quickly. Uh, the Sidious Meetings Act, which uh, you had to ask the police if you were meeting with more than 50 people for any political or religious-based reasons. Um, the Blasphemous and Seditious Act, which was the toughening um, of sentences for the press and others for writing against the government. And last, but of course no means least, the Newspaper and Stamp Duties Acts, which was a tax on publishing. The training one is interesting because it would only have been 1780 something that it was no longer compulsory for people to train with the bow and arrow indeed so we're talking less than half a century later it's uh, illegal and it's illegal to get i think it was probably illegal to gather in a public forum i think if you were probably going to a, a professional training academy there wouldn't be enough people to be tried under this act but yeah i get your point like it's not long after they're saying every man has to train with a longbow yeah I'd love to try a longbow. No, you wouldn't. Nah? No. You think you would, and then you get, because I have tried a longbow, you think you would, and then you get it, and you go, <laughs> because you can't actually pull it. The draw weight of a war-strung longbow is like 160 pounds. Ali, can we ask for some context what you're doing with a longbow? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was at a medieval uh, reenactment day with the Venture Scouts in okay. two. Uh, that's actually the cover story he loses for a lot of things um, um i like that in a audio medium though you demonstrated to adam and i how yeah. to draw a longbow thanks for that that was really good for the listeners ali is i know you always need that um uh what's the, the spoken word person that's on um like xbox games that tells you what's going on we need that for the podcast just for you we do i don't think they were asking for too much the the other thing things they were asking for was the votes for all men annual parliaments and equal constituencies. And there was a few Scottish radicals that might have wanted a Scottish parliament, but we'll skirt quickly over that one. Um, and like I say, I don't think they are too bad a, a set of demands because at the time we have to remember that the houses of parliament were essentially the elite, the, the, the landed gentry and stuff like that. There was no direct representation of the working man. So this is that kind of revolutionary point where they're looking for the working man to be represented. <laughs> However, the government don't quite like that they're there, as you can quite imagine, um, and they've got a bit of uh, a chance here that they want to use to try and stop a repeat of what happened at Cato Street. Um, and I think it's probably a good idea to stamp that out because Cato Street was a reasonably well thought out plan, poorly executed. And and if it had been properly executed, we w- they would have. If it had been properly executed, they would have removed the entire British cabinet. Mm. Um, so you can understand why they want to stamp that out. And a man with power, the thing he doesn't want to lose the most is the power he has. Yeah. So with this in mind, uh, they decided that the best way to disband these groups would be. Uh, well, we need to find out what they're doing. We need to find out what they're saying. We need to find out what they're planning. And how do you do that? Spy. Spies. We send in the spies. Uh, the British government essentially sent in spies to groups of the own of their own people to find out what they were planning. 
that doesn't sit easy with me. I'm aware it probably happens all the time. And God knows there's some of the boys in here, I think that they've got funny background stories. They might be spies, but we'll wait and see. But yeah, I just, I don't find it an easy sitter, but different times, different people, I suppose, isn't it? So March of 1820, and all these spies were in place to infiltrate the committees of radicals. And they are committees at this point because they're locally elected members from outlying factions. Uh, the meeting of the overall committee for organising a provisional government, or the COPGA, was due to happen on the 21st of March in Glasgow. And the police get wind of this through one of their spies. And the Glasgow police inform the Home Secretary that, I quote, a meeting of the organising committee of this rabble is due in this vicinity in a few days hence. So they know what's going to happen. Mm. So armed with that knowledge, the committee meets up, spies are all there, police turn up, and um, this is where we see the leaders of the committee of the Organisation for Provisional Government, just because I like saying it. Uh, they're all arrested. Uh, and it's where the police get quite a bit sneaky on this point. They don't make it public. They don't announce that they've un- they've arrested these leaders of the, the committee because they want to coax out more radicals. They want to either interrogate the men that they've arrested or they want to wait until their spy, no- spy network pays off further. It, whether it paid off further or not, I would be speculating on, but I think it certainly put the shivers up the, the committee uh, because less than two weeks after this arrest, the wider radical network, not knowing about really what's happened there, but knowing that there's probably people missing, put out a massive poster drop all over Glasgow and into the surrounding area, calling for a general strike to take place on the 3rd of April. Now, these posters are branded with the Committee for Organisation of a Provisional Government. So we know what they're doing. The strike works. The poster campaign works, sorry, and and the strike takes place and and goes on across that whole central belt of Scotland. And at its peak, over 60,000 weavers are on strike. Now that's, I mean, to me, that's a huge number of what would have been an occupation of, you know, an occupation of probably a couple of hundred thousand. You know, you're looking at a vast proportion of them taking place. And it's not just that that strike's going on at this point that worries the local authorities. They're concerned because there's also reports that go alongside it of military-style training drills going on in the outlying areas of Glasgow and Stirling. And as such, I suppose the posters and the strike would maybe be seen as a call to arms, like you mentioned earlier. Um, It certainly could be. It could be seen as a call to arms of the working class. I'm not sure personally whether I believe that that's what it was. I think it was a forcing a hand moment rather than a get your pitchforks and let's chase these out of town. But the authorities didn't need much of a reasoning to say, we're not happy with this. The authorities probably weren't even happy with their name. I mean, you're not happy with their name. No, I'm not happy with their name because it's long-winded and ridiculous. But the authorities probably weren't happy with their name because, I mean, their name is almost treason in itself. We've talked before about how the uh, government transferred the meaning of treason uh, from being just treason against the king to being treason against the government represented of the king. So calling yourself the committee for... The, what was it? The COPGA. Yeah, the COPGA. The committee for the... Organisation of Provisional Government. Organisation of Provisional Government. It's it's almost a treasonous name in itself. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you do when they, when you're worried and the police are worried? Hide. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what, no, sorry. Cheese it. <laughs> Just cheese it. No, spe- not you specifically. <laughs> I give them uh, Bob's details. All right. <laughs> um, well, the government brought in the military. Next step, really. Yeah. It shouldn't be next step, but in it comes. And they're brought in to pe- keep guard over specific areas in the Glasgow and surrounding areas. Stuff that maybe it would feel like it might kick off a bit and things that they needed to keep open. I'm thinking kind of the docks and the shipyards and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Maybe slightly out with my time frame there, but it's certainly there would have been industry that they wanted to keep open. Saunas? Would they keep saunas open, do you think? Always. Always. Have you visited a, a Scottish sauna since you've been here? <laughs> Anyway, back to the story. <laughs> Always happy for an interjection. Don't worry. worry. Um, so the military are standing guard by every sauna in Glasgow. And uh, I don't want to speculate about it, but I think to me, certainly, from there, it takes a step up. So I would imagine that there's certainly uh, an influ- influence from the military being on the streets as such to the radicals going, we need to do something here. Was it regimental military or private military, do you know? Uh, very good question, and I don't have an answer for you. Because there was a lot of private military at the time. I mean, we're not far off a reasonably privatised police force at this point. I don't know when the Bay Street runners would have ended, but it would have been about round about this time yeah. frame uh, before we became a, a nationalised police force. In fact, we talked about this in the last episode we recorded. Yeah, but at this time, a lot of the landed gentry were raising their own private military forces to keep the peace. Could be argued a different group of radicals. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would imagine it'd be regimental military, though. I, I, I get the impression it certainly was. Um, the escalation is probably best demonstrated about three days later when they decide to go from strike to marching on Karen Works. Now, Karen Works is um, essentially one of the main iron forgeries in Scotland. Falkirk? It's in Falkirk, yeah. yeah. Um, if you walk past a post box in the street, Adam, have a look at the bottom of it. Chances are it will be made at Karen. Um, it, it, they made most of the ironworks, a lot of the uh, drains, uh, probably uh, telephone boxes, the whole lot, but definitely the, the big red old-style uh, pillar boxes. Or all old, the railings. All the railings, yeah. So it was a big factory. Do you think you guys need to get out more? Or not? Definitely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I, these are the sorts of things I take photos of when I'm walking down the street. Yeah. Um, I'm taking my dog to canal murder spots next week. <laughs> <laughs> That's his walk. Um, and it's this point. We've, we've kind of skirted around bits and pieces here, but I'd like to bring you our uh, main radicals. Our main radicals, again, are John Baird and Andrew Hardy. Now, on the 4th of April, around 60 men gathered in Glasgow and decided to start their march on the Karen Works in Falkirk. Um, the main thing that they would have been producing at the ironworks that they would have been interested in was weaponry, mm-hmm. um, cannons and the like, which is definitely a step up in, in everybody's eyes that whether they were going there for the weapons or not, that's somewhere they're targeting. These two men... Uh, sorry. It's also worth briefly noting, Bob mentioned cannons there which which almost sounds patently ridiculous but a lot of these people would have been ex-soldiers from the napoleonic war so they would have had a rudimentary weapons training and things like cannons 
certainly both of our main protagonists here were ex-soldiers. Yeah, there's a lot of ex-soldiers from the Napoleonic War who came back and then couldn't get work doing what they were doing before they became soldiers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So with that in mind, on the 4th of April, around 60 men gathered in Glasgow and they start that march on um, the Karen Works in Falkirk. These men were split into two groups um, and put under the charge of two men. The first was military trained Andrew Hardy and he was given a card that was torn in half. Uh, and he was told when he arrived at Karen, he would meet another man carrying the other half of the card. And that man, of course, we know now was John Baird. He was also military trained, having served in the 95th Regiment. Oh, it's a good regiment. 95th best. <laughs> 95th uh, Rifles. First regiment to be armed with Baker Rifles. Is that right? British Skirmishing Regiment. Oh, there you go. Um, you may have guessed we get a bit geeky sometimes. <laughs> yeah, love it. <laughs> yeah. Baird set off in front of Hardy, and he was worried that they would not have enough men with them. Even when the card of power was reunited, it might not be quite enough. Was it called the card of power? I'm calling it the card of power. <laughs> you will meet another man who has the other half of the card of power. When I was writing this, I just all I had pictured in me was the like Captain Planet. Do you remember they all had the rings? Oh yeah, the Earth, Wind, whatever. That that was what was going through my head. It dates me slightly, but I'm all right with it. Um, Baird was reassured by his superior, a man by the name of John King, not to worry. Because you're going to meet people en route and they're going to take up arms with you. They're going to go join the revolution. Um, didn't work. Now, revolutionaries always think that. Yeah, didn't work. They did come across a couple of groups of travellers on their, on their way. Um, they didn't convince anyone to join them. What they did was they told them what the fuck they were doing. And the guys went off and went, excuse me, it's a group of guys about to march on Karen Works and Falkirk. You should probably go and stop that. So, unbeknownst to them... Uh, group of cavalry and soldiers was sent from Perth. And Perth's 30, 40 miles from Falkirk. Glasgow's probably 30 miles from Falkirk. So, you know, they're going to meet reasonably nearby. Uh, And they do. The two forces come together at Bonnie Muir. And this is a newspaper report from the time. On observing this force, the radicals cheered and advanced to a wall over which they commenced firing at the military. Some shots were then fired by the soldiers in return, and after some time the cavalry got through an opening in the wall and attacked the party who resisted till overpowered by the troops, who succeeded in taking, taking 19 of them prisoner and who were lodged at Stirling Castles. Four radicals were wounded. The Glasgow Herald goes on to say the conspiracy appears to be more extensive than almost anyone imagined. Radical principles are too widely spread and too deeply rooted to vanish without some explosion, and the sooner it takes place, the better. I find that a really interesting sentence at the end there. They were not advocating for either side, but they knew something was going to happen. And this is the, the start of the something. John Baird and Andrew Hardy were amongst those arrested at Bonnie Muir, and it's attested to in a document from Stirling Castle outlining the prisoners that were kept there that were all charged with high, uh, high treason. It's a really interesting document that I found, and basically it's called, it's called The Calendar of Prisoners charged with high treason, and then their lists and some, some information about them. And it's obviously just what they've gathered. It's like, take your name and details by the police. But it's an old document. It's slightly yellowed, and it looks cool as hell. Um, and these two men appear on that, and that's the kind of the basis that I can go of as to why they might have been hanged in Stirling, because they certainly weren't from here. 
Before we get on to that, there are several more skirmishes between radicals and the military, most of them too small to outline at the moment. Certainly the biggest one was at Bonnie Muir. One of note did happen the following day as a force of two factions of radicals tried to meet up near Strathen. Uh, one of them was from Cathkin, one of them was from Strathen. And they were, by the time they got together, really worried about the idea of an ambush by the army. And as such, they went, nah, fuck this, let's go back. <laughs> nah, we can't. And they did get met by the army, and 10 of them were caught and jailed in Hamilton. That was James Wilson, wasn't it? That was James Wilson, indeed. I have skirted over him slightly because I wanted to try and keep it about the two boys that were hung just up the road. Yeah. Hanged, sorry. I keep getting in trouble for this. Um, Meat is hung. People are <laughs> hanged. Thank you. <laughs> uh, like I say, there's a load of other small uh, local uprisings all happening in mainly small weaving communities. And in total, 88 men were taken to trial and charged with treason. A special court was set up in both Stirling and in Glasgow. By royal commission, a court of Oyer and Terminaire was used to prosecute. And basically that translates as to hear and determine. So basically a judge hears everything that's going on and makes a decision about what's happening in the end. Um, I guess this was probably done because you wouldn't have found a very local jury willing to find them to guilty. convict them, yeah, because like as we've as I've said a few times, the, there was a general feeling of mistrust and, and, and alienation from the government, dissatisfaction, absolutely. Um, so they installed this court, and I had a wee read, and only on the website that rhymes with Bikabibia, um <laughs> about how many times it's been used, and it's no, this hasn't been used that many times, once or twice in Scotland, a couple of times in the United States, but it's been. Certainly in the United States, it would have been before the American War of Independence because it was a British thing that they could bring in. But it seems to, from my reading of it anyway, have been installed in this case to make certainty of of the outcome. We prefer a jury in our legal proceedings. Yep, not in this case, though. Still got the all-powerful government in charge, don't we? And not anymore. Most people are in front of the magistrates. You're middle class, non-expert. It's true. Bias. Most of the men that appeared at trial of the 88 were sentenced to transportation, as you said, Alistair. Uh, quite a few of them sent to New Zealand, a couple of them sent to Australia, and a couple of them sent to Van... Van Diemen's Land. Van Diemen's Land. Would have been Tasmania, I think, yeah. at the time. Um, great name for an island, though. They should have I, kept know. <laughs> I would have kept Van Diemen's Isle. You've covered this a few times, have you, Van Diemen's? It tends to be... Um, it crops up. Where... So although we see uh, Australia as the penal colony, um, certainly the cases we've covered, and we've covered a, a, a fair amount in the, the kind of 1810 to 1860s period recently. It's, for some reason, it's some, somewhere the two of us keep landing, and, and we'll make no excuses for history. You, you know, um, But it seems to be either Van Diemen Land was the landing area for the ships that they were sent, or that's where they spread the colony from. Um, not you don't fe- hear many reports of people sent directly to Australia, but certainly when you look into specific cases, they tend to end up in Australia. One we covered recently, the guy was sent in uh, transportation, uh, penal transportation, uh, and ended up the chief of police for uh, a town in um, uh, just outside Brisbane, I think it was. Yeah. One of the uh, an Australian town. He ended up yeah. chief of police there, and he'd been sent wow. there on a penal colony transport ship. <laughs> He'd done 12 or 13 years at hard labour by that point. Yeah. But it certainly just, it, it always tickles me when I go, you just 
sent these people away and they then went and had a probably a better life to be honest um, sometimes 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 they did not have a better life there were some grim grim places we sent people to panama was really bad yeah yeah we sent a lot of people to panama then just abandoned them uh, yeah yeah i don't want to be abandoned anywhere i mean at least if you're going to sentence me to hard labor i know what i'm doing when i get there yeah in van diemen's land in australia there was a support network for them we really just sent like five or six ships of people to panama and left them. Ah, burn the ship and walk away. Didn't even burn the ship, we just sailed it away again. Ah, yeah, use it again. Um, as I say, most of them were sentenced to transportation, and um, the one I would like to come back to is the one that was tried here in Stirling. So, we had 19 people kept in jail at Stirling Castle, which I still find really cool, because <clears throat> if you've not been to the castle, Adam, I would highly recommend it. Uh, the oldest part of the castle still standing from about uh, 1300 uh, so 400 years before the pub you're in now wow um, and it's got a very really it's, got, it's still got the old dungeons there and it's still got the cool Argyll and Sutherland Museum and everything it's yeah. definitely worth a okay. I don't know why I'm plugging Stirling Castle now but here we are <laughs> you're plugging Stirling Castle on the one day that the Stirling Castle <laughs> work people are not sitting beside us <laughs> do you know one of the reasons I found this case was actually because the Stirling Castle lot all came down and went have you not done a case that involves the castle I was like well here we are and they're not even here. And they're not even here. Baird and Hardy, taken from the jail uh, in Stirling Castle and brought down to the toll booth, which still stands in its original place around the corner. And after the trial, the judge says in conclusion, you, Andrew Hardy and John Baird, I can only hold out little or no hope of mercy as you were the leaders. And I'm afraid that example must be given of you. So on dons the black cap and the sentence was to be hanged by the neck until dead for your head to be removed and the body disposed of in the manner that the king sees fit. On the 8th of September, Hardy and Baird are executed outside the toll booth and watched by a crowd of 2,000, as I said. The sheriff of Stirling at the time, Ranald MacDonald. Yes. Amazing. Did he go on to open a burger <laughs> franchise by any chance? Um... He, may, he basically made a requirement of them that they weren't allowed to give a political speech on the gallows. They were not allowed to stand up and say, for freedom I stand, or whatever it happened to be at the time. But they were told they were allowed to speak of the Bible. Baird finished his brief talkings on the gallows with, um, with this. Although this day we die an ignominious death by unjust laws, our blood, which is very in a very few minutes, shall flow on the scaffold, we cry to heaven for vengeance, and may it be the means that of our afflicted countrymen speedy redemption. And Hardy went on to say, Our blood shed on the scaffold for no other sin but seeking the legitimate rights of our ill-used and downtrodden beloved countrymen. Sheriff wasn't too happy about this. because no, Hardy got a bit political. Yeah, it's got a bit, got a bit in there. Um, Sheriff didn't like it too much. Told them to uh, bugger off and, and read their Bibles again. But of course, they didn't have a chance to go off and read their Bibles, did they? No, but they uh, sung their hymns. They did sing their hymns. There were three preachers attendant. Oh, to sing along with them? Yep. Like a proper, like maybe those, maybe that's why 2,000 people were there. Yeah. For the songs. <laughs> for the songs. Yeah. When we, when we post this, I've got a, I'll send you a link to an article for the newspaper article covering the specifics of the execution which we could post at the time yeah man that's quite interesting yeah all that stuff man yeah we definitely need to this is this is one like i say i've skirted around this and talked a wee bit about bits and pieces and stuff uh but i just find it fascinating reading about it 
but I, I could have done four hours, but I thought we'll try and keep it to the under the hour mark. You know, why yeah. not? Hardy and Baird are hanged and beheaded. And that was the last hanging and beheading that happened in the United Kingdom. Was it? What was the date? Uh, 18, uh, 8th of September, 1820. It wasn't the last hanging, but it was the last one that was essentially hung, drawn and quartered. James Wilson was hung, drawn and quartered on the 30th of August. Yeah, and the 8th of September is after the 30th of August. Oh, so it is. <laughs> Look at me with my dates. I know and, the words. And, and that is absolutely getting left in. But not the dates. That is absolutely getting left in. Well done. Awesome. My proudest moment. Thanks, Mum. I'm here. Um, the radicals that weren't caught. We did say there was 60,000 went on strike. I'm not counting all of them as radicals, but certainly there was a lot of them. Um, they did what I consider possibly the best thing to do at the time, and they all fucked off and jumped on a boat to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> and I suppose you could argue they lived a free life. Yeah. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of one of the biggest hangings to take place in Stirling. It was a grim execution as well, though. It was. I wasn't going to go, but feel free. Well, after, after, um, after they were hanged, uh, the executioner placed both their heads on the block, uh, removed Hardy's head with three chops, held it up, blood spurting from it, and said, this is the head of a traitor. Cast it aside, and then did the same for the second man. Oh, he got to watch that before he... Yeah. Oh, that is grim. Wow. Yeah. you got to think, we have come on a little way. Since they really then. hammered it home, though. Yeah. This is the head of a traitor. Well, I mean, it could be argued it was an English court that was sent here to do that. That's yeah, that's also true. Not not what I was going to end with, <laughs> but there we are. Uh, as I say, it was the last time the hang and beheaded act was used in the United Kingdom. And, and I, you're right. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I just find it an interesting case because it, it covers so much of um, revolution of the time, uh, and certainly, you, it, as I said at the beginning, it could be argued that these men weren't criminals until they took up arms and, and marched on a factory. I don't think that's okay. But until that point, you know, you can push back and say, did they do it because the military were there? Did they, were they not allowed free striking? Blah, 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 blah. But either way, what they did was tried as treason and convicted of treason. So there you are, Adam. My, my, my sterling history rundown for you for this evening. Oh, it's a fascinating case. I've never heard of it. It is a fascinating case. Just up the road as well. Yeah. Which yeah, is brilliant. Absolutely. Um, it's definitely worth it. Uh, if you're in town again, it's definitely worth the plaques literally just around the corner. Yeah. Um, if you follow this road up around the corner, there's two cannons sitting on the bottom and the toll booths up on the left hand side. I saw, I saw it. I saw it. Yeah. So that Wall Street, yeah. where the cannons are um, is essentially where the gallows would have been. Wow. Um, Treason's always a tough one because generally people are caught and convicted of it before they actually commit treason. Really, yeah, because it's it with a few ex- with a few high profile exceptions like Cato and yeah Guy Fox and stuff. People are usually on the way to commit treason it's conspir- when they are stopped. There, it's conspiracy to commit treason. Yeah, so it always feels a bit. You don't feel like they deserve their sentence because they hadn't actually committed the crime. It's tough. So, do you think the Kopka were oh, not gosh. fairly tried? The committee for the. Organization of provisional organization government. of provisional government were they unfairly tried, Alistair? <laughs> no, they weren't. They were probably fairly tried. It's just that with hindsight, it always feels a bit of a shame because they they had probably had good intentions. History is always written by the victors, indeed. 
And that's a wonderful statement to, to, to move on from. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned lots and lots from Alistair, less from you, Bob. But <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. <laughs> it's been a very enjoyable experience. Thank yeah, you. No, cheers. Um, if you're not a subscriber of Adam's podcast, why? Yeah, why not? <laughs> Idiot. Uh, get on there and subscribe. Um, if you're not a subscriber of Twisted Britain yet, you should be. Don't know how you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for being that. Can you not listen without subscribing? I think you can. Is that not a thing? Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, you definitely can. If you haven't subscribed, do that. Click that button. It doesn't take any any effort and you will always get our absolute noise in your ears. Uh, and we've just had out our two live from Crime Cons, which um, were the best fun I've ever had podcasting. Mm. Excuse. Yeah, after this evening. After this evening. After this evening, yeah, obviously. Excuse me. <laughs> get myself into trouble so many times. It were great fun. There's a lot less ambient noise tonight. There is, indeed. But I would say that uh, having you here, Adam, has certainly... Um, finished off a tick list of me of people who I wanted to record with. So thank you very much for doing that. Getting the chance to have recorded with yourself, Mike, Paul and Sinead and Dr. Shoham Das recently has been an absolute pleasure. And it's certainly something we, we've talked about. We'd like to do more. So if you ever fancy joining us again, you're yeah. more than welcome. I didn't even know I wanted to record with Sahom until I recorded with Sahom. Yeah. He was good. He was really good. Was it emotional? It was. It was. He was a criminal psychologist, uh, and his interpretation of things was just completely different to anything me and Bob would have brought to the table. So it was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Recording with him. Yeah, he's a bright guy, isn't he? Um, we'll uh, leave you this evening with the normal plugs. If you want to follow us on social media, please do find us at Twisted Britain on all three of them, and the Twisted Britain discussion group on Facebook. If you'd like to join Adam's uh, Facebook group, it is just UT- UK True Crime. It's never, it's many things, but it's never dull. It's never dull. There is a interesting number of people on there, I think is the word. <laughs> Out of control. Uh, an eclectic control. group. An yes. eclectic group um, of people who, some don't even know who a podcast is. And it, every time I read it, I feel like commenting, but I also feel like just sending you a message going, is this really happening? <laughs> and you can find most of them on the Daily Mail comment page. <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah make sure you jump on that it's always fun and if you're into true crime stuff there's a huge amount of content on there um, and and do look it up I used a couple of sources tonight Scotland's People um, was excellent Uh, Stories of Scotland the podcast one I hadn't listened to before but I I have now subscribed to it was really good Um, and there's a Facebook page that is literally just the 1820s Scotland's Radical Wars nice and they've posted a link to loads and loads of different other yeah. bits and pieces so I had a uh, we read around there so if you guys are listening thank you very much for doing that it's we we all know how much work social media is um I'll not babble on any longer uh, I will leave you as always with a thank you love you bye uh, thank you love you bye cheerio stay classy thank stay classy you bye <laughs> I can hear myself <laughs>
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.